Hello, I'm Jane Daly, and this is my podcast for people who know. As a thought leader and work-life activist, I'm curious about people who are accelerating their work and life. And whilst finding their own balance, they have found time to inspire others to do the same. My interest in Andrew Jacobs started when I noticed that he not only supported equality, but he took a stand against non-equality. Andrew is one of only a handful of people that I have seen refuse to participate in conferences or podcasts if people are not equally represented, women in particular. And I must thank Andrew for this because this isn't something I often see. Andrew, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you very much, Jane, and thank you for uh, inviting me on. So, Andrew, people will know from your bio that you are an experienced learning professional um, with all sorts of roles under your belt. But what would you like people to know about you? I think that I'm experienced in learning, but actually I've got experience outside of learning as well. Before I worked in learning, I've done a range of jobs, children's entertainer, butcher, um, working in a bank, repo man. Um, I've done lots and lots of different jobs. Um, and I think all of those things all add to um, uh, what I do around learning and development. Andrew, today you've chosen to focus on learning delivery. Tell us what that means to you and why you'd like to focus on that today. I think delivery is important because that's the bit that people think of in terms of learning. Um, but traditionally, we thought of that as training delivery. So how that's changed and how my thinking around that has changed, um, particularly over the last 10 years, um, I just think makes for um, an interesting conversation. I think the nature of technology has moved things on in a little bit, but also the nature of thinking around how people learn has also moved on. Um, and I think there's enormous opportunity now for uh, the delivery phase, uh, the, the opportunity now for learning to ramp up uh, and deliver what people want and need when they need it. I totally agree with you, and I can't wait to um, have a a look at learning delivery with you as we as we get into the time machine are you up for coming into the time machine with me absolutely fantastic so um hopefully you can see andrew i've made you feel at home here um lots of flashing lights and things um how is it for you as we get in it's almost tardis like <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of space in here, Jane. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. I, I, I absolutely love it. So, Andrew, I'm in control at the moment. I will give you the reins later. But for now, I'm going to take us to 2001. And um, I'm going to set the clock and off we go. So are you happy to come off to 2001 with me? Absolutely. Fantastic. So let me set the scene in 2001. So in 2001, the 9-11 terrorist attack which to be honest with you is still around us today dominated the world stage in terms of news in addition to that apple opened their first stores one in virginia and one in california microsoft entered the gaming arena with the xbox and itunes was launched the film of the year was steven spielberg's ai and you, Andrew, were working in training for the London Fire Brigade. So tell us what 2001 was like for you. 2001 was interesting. I'd been working in retail banking in learning roles up until uh, the end of 1999. And had moved into the fire service um, at a time when they wanted to move from uh, uh, comp uh, 
an instruction-based uh, approach, um, a very military approach to um, uh, the way that uh, officers were, were trained into a much more vocational approach. So um, I joined them at the start of um, 2000, end of, end of 99, beginning of 2000, and was looking at uh, how we could develop first-line, second-line managers uh, to be able to develop their, their people better. What was interesting, and it's still interesting, about the fire service is that you need managers and leaders there effectively with two heads. They need one head on the fire ground to be able to direct an order, uh, make sure people were safe, and to manage incidents. But if you have that same approach and that same mentality when you're sitting around a mess table, the people you have around them won't respect you. Similarly, if you've got a, a certain way of dealing with people on the station, you know, much more uh, uh, social, that's going to struggle when you uh, end up on the fire ground or on the incident ground. So helping managers have those two heads was really important. So, Andrew, you mentioned uh, managers having two heads there, which is a really interesting point. Um, and often, you know, I see in management that it's delivered one way. And so I think that is incredible that in 2001, you'd already recognised that and was doing something about it. Tell us something more about that. So we need to understand the context that we were working in as well. So uh, if you think of uh, fire stations, you know, what is the role of a fire station um, to house men to go and put out fires? So there's a couple of issues there. Well, firstly, um, firefighters don't have to be male. There's nothing to stop female uh, firefighters doing the job uh, equally well. Um, and secondly, uh, do we really want them putting out fires? Actually, their role should be about preventing fires happening in the first place. So you've got a changing organisation, you've got a changing culture, you've got a changing uh, role uh, and priority, uh, and you're doing that against the backdrop of, uh, or that's the backdrop that you're now operating in where you've got um, you know, a management cadre who could be quite uh, direct uh, and a management cadre who maybe weren't quite so direct. Um, so it was a real interesting melting pot. Uh, and to try and support learning and training within that space, um, I learned an awful lot about what good learning and training can be uh, without it necessarily being directly instructed. And Andrew, looking back at that time, what would you tell your um, less experienced self now? What would you tell yourself? What would you learn from that experience? The the important uh, experience would be um, <laughs> go and buy shares in Apple. <laughs> would be the first thing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think everybody would do. Um, but just also be acutely aware of what the possibility of technology could be. I had some idea of it. Um, and there was, I remember interesting conversations with a, a senior manager who suggested to me that um, every fire station needed to have a three of any technology because one would get broken, one would get lost and one would get used. Um, and so there was always limits in terms of technology because of uh, how, how uh, technology and equipment might be used. Obviously, it's a joke. Um, but understanding how the technology might change in the future um, and to try and help people understand about how to uh, encompass that technology will be particularly useful, I think. No, re really good advice. And I'm sure people listening today, because that advice is still relevant today. It's, you know, it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? Just the technology is slightly different and it's moving on, but it's exactly the same advice. 
absolutely i mean yeah this was 10 years before the ipad came along and then the ipad came along in 2010 and everything has changed since then I mean, what's going to happen in the next 10 years when we get to 2030 what will the technology be then and we need to recognize and understand that um learning technology doesn't exist in a vacuum it exists as part of uh, uh, other learning activity uh, and other technology um, which people use in their day-to-day lives no, amazing. And what an incredible role for you at the time to, um, you know, be able to look at the role of those different jobs that were happening at the time and different capabilities that were required and bring that together to look at prevention as well as everything else. Um, I really like um, your thinking that was going on there. So shall we move to the present day? Let's get back in this time machine and move to 2020. So we've arrived. It is rocky, I know, and we should probably fly past, but we are going to stop. Um, but there is a bit of good news here, Andrew, because you have just won the J. Cross Memorial Award for your work in informal learning. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I was as surprised as anybody <laughs> when I was awarded that. And um, I have massive respect for um uh, Jane Hart and um, Harold Jarkey and Charles Jennings and, and Clark Quinn, who who together decided that um, I was worthy of, of some kind of recognition, and I'm very appreciative to them. And Andrew, it's absolutely well deserved. I know I know you are humble, and I know you probably wouldn't even want to call yourself an expert, but you really are making positive waves out there, in particular with um, with your lost and desperate pod, uh, blog. Is it a blog? I don't know if it's a, is it a blog. That's really interesting. It started off as a blog in terms of a, a web blog. And now what it is, is it's a, a, a place where every day um, I just record some thoughts about learning or development or management or anything else that just happens to be going on in my head. I've been writing there daily since, oh, it's coming up for 18 months now. And it's incredibly freeing and I would recommend it to everybody. I I, I, um, I I love writing too. I mean, I don't share all of it, but it is inc- incredibly um, valuable and therapeutic. And just to understand where you are yourself, you know, how do you fit your own mask before then helping others? Because there's a lot of stuff going on out there, isn't it? Just trying to make sense of it all is, is, is one thing. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm acutely aware there's a lot of noise. And yeah, I don't write the the blog for anybody else. I write it for me. Um, And there's there's two reasons for that. Number one, because it gives me a place where I know that I've I've got my thoughts. So it it operates like a second brain kind of thing. So yeah, I've done some reflection, I've done some encoding, I've made sense of something. Um, Then I put it on the blog for me to help me understand it. Um, The second reason for, for putting it on the blog um, is because it forces me to edit down and, and it's improved my writing so um, some people call them short form blogs some of them are very very short the shortest blog um, was two words which was the title was one of them um, and the blog itself was one word um, but it, it forces me to edit and think about the editing process um, so that you get just the right information to people um, and just the right cues for me to help me remember um, what it was that uh, I was working on and, and thinking about at that time. And tell us what you are observing in this, you know, climate. What you know, what are you observing that's going on, and uh, what impact do you think that is having on people's work lives? I think there's a lot of Mexican food at the moment, and that's the the same ingredients folded differently. Um, I'm seeing a lot in the learning world where people are taking the same pieces of content they had before, reorganizing them, changing them, reshaping them, 
uh, taking stuff out, putting something else in, folding it in a different way, you know, on an online platform, through a webinar, through um, uh, a series of podcasts or whatever it is, and just reserving it back up again. So in terms of originality, there's very little originality happening. And I think that's partly because, one, we've got tools that we don't know how to use in, a, in the learning world, which is, is one issue. Um, you know, we rely on what the vendors tell us rather than exploring for ourselves. And secondly, because we don't actually know what good looks like. We're in a very, very strange place at the moment. We're obviously recording while we're in the middle of the, the COVID-19. We're just, you know, the lockdown is ending. But nobody can tell you what work will be like in three months' time, let alone, you know, 18 months or three years, perhaps. Um, and I think they are, they are having a, a big effect on uh, some of the thinking that's going on around learning and development. And coming back to a topic which is something that you're already passionate about, learning delivery. Well, tell us what you're observing around that. So from a personal perspective, I think that the best learning development is organisational development. And what we shouldn't be necessarily doing is immediately defaulting to a learning position. A few years ago, I wrote about um, how we needed to move from being uh, shopkeepers to engineers. So instead of being the place where somebody would come along and say, I need a course, and we would just produce a course, and they would go away, and it would last them for two or three months, and they were generally happy with it because you know they got that buyer's uh, satisfaction. They would come back to us and go, well, actually, I want something similar but slightly different next time. And we would just continue to produce that. Now I think the conversation has to be different. The money is not going to be in the, the, the system to make that work. People are going to want more bang for their buck. And we've also been in a situation where people have gone and found stuff out for themselves. People in my organisation didn't sit there and go on courses to learn how to use Teams. They learned how to use Teams. They looked up YouTube videos. They engaged with uh, their peers on Yammer. Um, and that was done with limited learning support. We, we obviously had a lot of um, uh, material. Uh, but people did that on their own. And that idea of uh, self-organized learning, approach of discovery, where somebody will go and look for things themselves, um, we need to absolutely accept because learning delivery is not going to be the same anymore. We're not going to be sticking people in classrooms, sitting down and talking at them for six hours. Um, those days have pretty much gone. We're seeing it even within schools. And we look at see how uh, education's changed in the last three or four months it's not going to be the same again. And the smart L&D people will realise that and will start surfing that wave rather than trying to push against it. It's a huge opportunity, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, we have to face facts that there is, in my eyes, a huge divide between people that are really driving a different level of learning and development. You also mentioned organisational development there. Um, and that is really working, you know, really helping people be more self determined and um, drive things himself nudging things curating things you know really working alongside the business and there's a lot of and there's to me the other camp where they're not really coming along at the pace of what is required even in this time of crisis so you know for me there is a huge opportunity but you have to do something different in order to join the right bus I agree absolutely, Jane. And it's as simple as saying, well, what coat are they wearing? Um, and I think there's a lot of people doing training wearing a learning coat, and they want to do training. And as soon as the, the heat comes down, they'll, they'll take the, the, the coat off, and you'll find they're still trying to do training. But there won't be anybody to do training like that anymore. Um, so it's finding where people are doing useful uh, activity, performance-led activity, not learning-led activity, um, using performance data, not learning data. 
you know, using performance design, not learning design. Uh, those are the people who are the, we need to be looking at and seeing how they're, they're um, you know, supporting their business and their organisations. Definitely. I mean, and giving credit to people who are working in organisations who are really doing a lot of this anyway. They just don't realise they are. You know, so being able to go in there and get under the skin of what they managed to do on their own is, in, you know, to find out what they did and build on that as a strength is incredibly rewarding rather than breaking that down and then trying to start somewhere else. It's building on those strengths. And I'm not seeing enough of that. Are you? It's, it is there. Um but it's finding it in 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 it's finding it in diverse range of places enough that that that's what's important clayton christensen talks about four factors that limit innovation uh, and one of those is lateral um, people won't try something new if they can't see anybody else doing it so you have to find the people who are doing new things and use them as your um exemplars um, because you can use them to sell back into the business. Well, we know this is going to work because it's worked over there. So you need exemplars uh, and people who are doing things slightly differently. Um, and that's probably the role that, that the learning press on these state now. Go and see who's doing that stuff that's interesting. Go and have a chat with them uh, and use them as, as opportunities to say, okay, you did it this way. How could we do it this way? And, and, and form a coaching network, form a network with these people because they are there. It's just finding them. That's really good advice. Well, let's get back in this time machine, Andrew, and let's 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 go into the future. Let's just go and see what's going on in twenty thirty. So, um, you know, we we have arrived in twenty thirty, which is now less than ten years from now. Um, what do you foresee? The integration of technology in the workplace uh, is going to have moved on significantly, and I think we will see a lot of tasks being automated that people originally would have done themselves if we're not careful learning and development will be holding on to activities and tasks which could be done by computer by systems by ai and be focusing on the wrong activities to be done this is why the the opportunity in 2020 is absolutely about working out what the, the organization might want in 2030 uh, the learning function is going to be very different. The learning function should be you know, working with people around critical analysis. You know, if we think, well, people who are going to be in the workplace then, you know, somebody joining the workplace 20 years old will be 11 years old now. They will have lived through the COVID um, situation in their school. They would have been used to working remotely, independently, online, uh, away from their teacher, developing their own peer learning sets, uh, getting direct instruction on a local basis from friends and from family. And we're going to say that you're now going to come in our workplace and we're going to sit you down and we're going to talk at you for two days, giving you an induction. It's just not going to wash. So we need to recognise that the workforce in 10 years' time is going to be very different. And we will have moved to a, uh, a digital residency much more than we have now. I don't buy into the, the generation X, Y, blah kind of approach. Um, and actually much more buy into the idea of being digitally resident or digitally visiting. What COVID-19 has done is it's turned a lot of visitors into residents, and it's taken people who weren't uh, engaged digitally and actually started making them into visitors. In 10 years' time, that technology will have moved on substantially. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and I'm suspecting that that could even be accelerated further because of the situation that we're in now it was all it was always coming um, but it may have even accelerated what was going to happen so in some respects 
um, L&D could already be late with planting some of those seeds they need to plant now in order to be as fit as they need to be for the future, where okay. the workforce is going to be you know, less fixed, if you like. There's going to be less people in full-time roles. Some people predicted to have you know, a portfolio of five or six roles on the go at one time. And at the moment, L&D don't even pick up contingent gig and people that are not fully employed by the organisation that they work for. So got to get a lot of different thinking going on for L&D in order to think, do that. Yeah, I, I, we need to be careful not going entirely down that gig route. Um, organisations will still exist because there will be a maintenance and a, a holding of power within organisation. You know, we talk about Uber and so on. And I, I heard a sort of brilliant phrase the other day, you know, where, you know, people talk about Uber, great for the gig economy. Uber is the, the largest non-profit in the world because they haven't turned a profit. They're not making any money. They're entirely supported by um, venture capital. And at any time, a venture capitalist might decide to pull their money out and Uber would fall to pieces. So we just need to be very clear what we mean by that idea of gig economy. I think from a learning perspective, the, the learning um, profession, um, I think there's four facets of, of literacy around the digital space, which they need to be absolutely clear on. Uh, and the first one is can and can't. Uh, and so that's actually having the ability to. So do learning have the ability to understand how to use technology in a different way? The second facet around literacy is around have and haven't. And that's about actually having the technology, the access, 5G speed, whatever the, the, the technology needs to be. And that's something in organisations where the learning function needs to be working much closer with the IT function in understanding how they can use the technology within the business. The third facet around digital literacy is will or won't. And this is entirely attitudinal. So this is where the learning function have to make that decision around we will choose to use the technology or we won't. And again, that has to be driven fu fundamentally by what's the organisational strategy. If the organisation is happy not to be using it, then the learning function is entirely consistent with that. But it has to be absolutely aligned with the organisation's technology strategy. And the last facet around digital literacy is around should or shouldn't. And that's about, well, should we be doing this learning online or shouldn't we be? Should it be done face to face? And there will still be a need for people to connect with people whether that be online or in a, an analog face-to-face -face way, there is still a need for connection. And we can't necessarily throw everything out. We have to understand the technology will change things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to change everything. And so the fourth facet, that should we change or shouldn't we change, should come last, but we can't do that until we've picked all the other three up first. Because what we end up doing is, well, I don't know how it works and we haven't got the technology, so we shouldn't be doing it. The should, shouldn't, should be the last facet that we should be looking at. Really interesting. Um, I'm reflecting on what you were saying, Andrew, and I think, you know, we mustn't forget we're in the business of human flourishing and there is, a, you know, an innate need um, as people to connect with others. So we may choose, as you say, you know, I like your thinking around choosing to connect people face to face because that may be the disruption needed um, to counteract that maybe you work so much in a digital means. So, you know, it's horses for courses, really, isn't it? It's what is required to um, you know, make the human flourishing happen in the right way. Absolutely, content is king, context is kingdom. 
So it doesn't matter how great the content is, you know, whether you've designed, whether it's online or face to face or whatever, it's what suits the context of the organization, the people within it at that time. That that's not necessarily building to their preference because you have to work outside people's preference sometimes, but it's building to be the most effective. And that's the, the, the challenge for learning because I don't think we understand the data around performance well enough to be able to say, this would be best for the business, even though it might be painful, it might be uncomfortable. Um, it would still work out to be the best approach. Um, and I'm, I think we have a lack of data awareness to be able to capture the right data. And that's not down to, that's no fault of learning. That's that's the fault of um, every function in a business, whether it be HR, finance, or whoever, who um, haven't looked at uh, what good performance data needs to look like in the future. Definitely. And, and you know, also the level of, of data, you know, learning is about behavioural change. So, you know, we're not going to find out around what we need to in terms of has behaviour changed. If we're looking at what I call surface level data, we're often using the wrong data to try and find out if there's been a change. So, you know, often when I go in and analyse what's going on, you know, step one has gone wrong in the first place. So trying to get, you know, to step three or four is never going to happen because we haven't started by understanding what we're after in the first place. So I, I, I call it I call it the sickness absence question. Every organization will have sickness absence training for their managers. But fundamentally, what difference does it make to the number of days that people are ill within the workplace? It's a very good point. I like your thinking. Now <laughs> I have I have a um, a question for you as we sit in the future is that um, you know like you, I really hope to see that women are you know, we're really starting to see the difference from you know, planting different seeds for women and seeing change happen because we're not seeing change happen uh, quickly enough for women in particular, and in particular in the uh, people industry. So the business of people, women are not getting those senior jobs. And if things don't change, you know, in a hundred years time, we could still be in the same situation. So for you, Andrew, who's someone who has absolutely stood up for equality, in particular for women. What advice would you give people in order to shift that? Thank you for, for picking that up. It, it's, it's something that's very important to me because I go to conferences and events and I have just seen over the last few years things have changed, but there is just a, a stream of people who look like me. You know, I'm a, a middle-aged white man and if I want to, I can go to an event and I can just sit there and watch a stream of middle-aged white men just talking about the things that I like. Um, so it would be very easy for me just to sit back. But then I'm, it feels entirely wrong to be absolutely just disassociating or, or disenfranchising um, a whole group of people uh, to be able to uh, uh, show what they have, what they know. And you know what? They probably know better than I do. I mean, I'm, I'm very glad to be here and talking with you. But actually, in 10 years' time, I would hope that nobody's asking me to come and talk on any podcasts because I would hope that there'll be you know people from all over the place actually offering these things up as well uh, and offering their experience. So the kind of things that, that people need to do is, is, as I say to pretty much every man who I find out is speaking at an event, is what, what's the, the, the split you know, by uh, ethnicity and by gender? Um, and if it's not split at least equally for men or women, then why are you doing it? If it's not split at least representatively uh, in terms of ethnicity, then why are you doing it? You know, we're in a country which is still within the UK, which has still got a, a significant gender pay gap. And 
So there's, there's a lot of work needs to be undertaken in that space. And I'm quite sure that there would be uh, a very large pay gap as well if organisations were asked to report on it. And that scares me. That scares me a lot because it seems to me basic uh, humanity is is that if people are doing the same job, then they should be rewarded the same. And similarly, from a, a learning development perspective, if people are, uh, are doing good things, then they should be able to tell other people about it. It's not just about the middle-aged white men. We forgive you for that, Andrew. <laughs> I, 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 I can't change who I am. I, I, I'm not going to change my gender and there's nothing I can do about my ethnicity. What I can do, though, is recognise the privilege I've had to be in this place where I am and to use that privilege to pull people up and to try and help them. That is, is That, to me, seems a, a, a basic principle and a, a basic value that um, I can't see why why people struggle with that. It's, it makes no sense when people um, argue against it to me. Andrew, again, I know that you are humble, but you are you are in a small minority of people that are not only saying the right stuff, you are doing it. And that's what I love about everything that you do. You um, not only bring a huge amount of knowledge and you know simplicity to this stuff but you actually practice it as well um, and you're not afraid to stand up and say no I actually think this now I've learned that and, and that's incredibly powerful so you know thank you for that but I'm going to be really brave now and I'm handing over my time machine to you so um, where do you want to go you're in the driving seat I'm all yours. Uh, I would be very keen to go uh, back to the early 1900s and I want to be looking at uh, education then and I want to be talking to everybody who was involved in education around the, the turn of the, the last century just to try and help them understand that sitting people in desks looking at somebody at the front is not the way that the people in the room are going to learn because fundamentally our education and workplace learning has been built on the principles that were established then they, they came out of Germany, the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, and this this Bismarckian approach to learning um, has done us no favours whatsoever. I mean, it's it's happened for years. It, it happened, you know. You can go back and see, you know, the, the way that Greeks and the Romans, you know, the, the idea of the lecture and so on. Yeah, it goes back to there in, in the dim distant past. But at the turn of the century, it became industrialised. You know, the, the the turn of the the nineteenth century, or the twentieth century rather, it became industrialised. And that's the point where we need to stop it. It's not about just cramming content into people and to try and get people to do stuff differently. Because if we picked up then that it was about being much more social and working with other people uh, and using subject matter experts and peers uh, and relying on people generating and producing their own content, which would be validated by a, a group of people rather than from uh, you know somebody centrally at the front of the room, then all of a sudden the power around knowledge is, is dissipated and shared. And we wouldn't be delivering face-to-face classes in the way we are now. Technology would have been used fundamentally for learning very differently. We wouldn't have iPads, you know, being used in, as a way of differentiating uh, between the haves and the have-nots. It would just be expected that, that people would learn from other people. Uh, and that social cooperative approach, uh, that cooperative way of learning, assuming that somebody somewhere knows the answer and I just need to get a connection with them, is a very different way of, of moving things forward. I just wish I could speak to the, the people who came up with that uh, in the early 20th century and just tell them to stop. <laughs> well, today you can. And I, I totally agree with you. These there's some really deep rooted issues, um, which, you know, quite, quite frankly, when you 
um, you know, work in a, in a large organisation and you, you know, generally talk to people and find out everybody's coming along with what's termed as a psychological contract where they've had um, something that's happened to them as part of their education journey that stops them just understanding themselves and what potential they have. Whatever route they've gone through, there's varying grades of it. There's definitely stuff going wrong right at the beginning and we're not born like that are we because when we're little and we're free and you know we're exploring and we're playing together um fabulous stuff going on and then it just sort of all collapses um in, into a heap but i know lots of people are trying to change it but not fast enough so i i agree with you it's um it's the 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 combined double-edged sword of um, compliance and scalability so any startup organization doesn't have a learning function they have a learning function when they have to hit the compliance and so learning is designed from a compliance perspective and then bigger learning functions get built when things need to scale where we work on the assumption that well we're going to have a hundred people here who will need to know how this works so let's scale this up and uh, i call it lcd learning lowest common denominator <laughs> learning of the lowest common denominator for people when fundamentally it's wrong yeah, it's shocking. It, it it really is shocking. And you know, we need to help people. Um, you know, understand. I'm I'm still amazed. I'm not really um, because I've been around it too long. But I always check in. You know, people understanding that. You know, without the you know including reflection or application, it's not learning at all. Um, and you know, that comes up every single day of my work life where people that are incredibly experienced in their roles and their career still don't understand there is a fundamental difference between communication and learning and they really don't understand the difference of it and a lot of that's been deep rooted in whichever route they've come in even if they've been to some um, some of the top so-called top rated universities in the world so we've got to break that down education is the key it's not education it's awareness is the key i don't think it's education because as soon as you use words education then everybody thinks that it's about school again <laughs> that is true that is true it's not enough you know i want to see people you know what are they going to do about it you know if, you, if people are not passing it on just being aware is not enough but um I, 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 place, I place three levels across it. It's awareness, it's the three A's. Awareness, acquisition, application. And so we learn, we, we learn for awareness because we need to know something uh, and just be aware. So, you know, we, we become aware that, um, you know, uh, uh, walking in the road um, when there were cars coming um, isn't a good thing to do. So, so we, we, we get, a, we, we, we're taught uh, awareness and then we learn for, for acquisition so we're actually told the knowledge that goes around it so we explain to us that cars are moving at a certain pace and they can't stop and so on and so we, we build an understanding and a, a sense of what speed is but then we learn about application which is if you go to this place in a, in a road where there's a crossing or you go to the end of the road where there are no cars you know the green cross code then that's about application um, and what we do is we try and give people in learning we try and do the acquisition piece in everything when actually most people just need a little bit of awareness and a little bit of application they don't need to know how or why a car's braking system works um, in order to be able to learn how to cross the road <laughs> no that is very true that that is absolutely true i like that the three a's now andrew you because um you know you are um 
a lot of people are aware of you. Tell us something that that may surprise people. They may not know about you. Something that people may not know about me. Um, I'm uh, a competitive gamer, uh, and up until a few years ago, I was a competitive paintballer. Interesting. So you're not ninja, are you? You're not. You're not. You're, you're not ninja on Twitch. That we're never sure who he is. Is this you? No. no. <laughs> if only. Pace of paintballing. So yeah. this this is where you go and um, sort of roll about in in crazy places, and um, it's really painful, isn't it? Paintballing. It can be, but it's um, it's well, it's only painful if you get shot, and so you avoid <laughs> being shot. That is true. That is true. Well, I love that. That's great. I love that vision of you um, uh, of you paintballing, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Now, coming back to where we started with. Um, learning delivery is there anything that you want to um, you know say to listeners about learning deliveries as we close the, the our podcast conversation today uh, just a, a, a reminder is stop selling and start engineering if you continue to sell courses and you continue to deliver courses the only thing people will ask you for are courses so stop um, and start asking people fundamentally what their problems are ask them what problems they really want to change ask them the ultimate awkward question which is if i do this for you how happy are you for your organization to change you know how much are you willing for your organization to change you know if we change if we do this stuff um, and that's the question we should be asking so stop taking orders stop being that uh, waiter in the restaurant stop being the shopkeeper behind the um, at the counter and start being an engineer and actually saying, well, this is the problem you've got. This is what it looks like from my perspective. How can we take this forward? Uh, and that means working in concert with other teams and not just focusing purely on just trying to change behavior and trying to change skills and trying to change attitudes because that on its own won't work. You have to work with other people to get this stuff different. Great advice, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. I've loved being in the time machine with you today. Um, and I'm really grateful for you for you coming in uh, on this journey with me. So thank you so much. No, thank you once again for the opportunity. And um, to all our listeners out there, um, you know, tune in next time for um, another great um, journey in the people who know work-life time machine. Thank you. <laughs>